There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back, friends, to ADHD Chatter. This week, we're joined virtually by Brooke Schnittman, who is an ADHD coach with 20 years' experience. She's amassed over 150,000 followers on social media because of her incredible advice. This week in this episode, we really dive into ADHD relationship tips. And in the second half of the episode, we really explore ADHD parenting, motherhood, and everything that comes with being a parent with ADHD. It's a fantastic episode, huge amounts of value. Use the chapters if you want to skip ahead to your favorite bit. Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much. Brooke, thank you so much for your time. How are you? Doing great, Alex. How are you? Oh, I'm really good. I've, I've been looking forward to this for, for, for a long time. I think it's going to be one of those episodes that delivers a lot of value. I'm super excited to hear you share your story. And if we could start, I think, right from the beginning, which is the question I ask everyone, is based on the huge knowledge and experience and know-how of ADHD that you have now. What do you think your earliest memory of displaying ADHD traits was when you were younger? Well, I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little embarrassed. Um, One thing that really stands out to me was in high school, and I'll go back even further, but I kept getting out of a car and stepping into the same puddle on the way to tennis practice. And I remember my neighbor was like, Brooke, do you realize that you keep stepping into the same puddle every day that there's practice? I'm like, no, she's like, you do it every day. So my working memory of like remembering (laughs) that there was a stupid puddle that I wasn't doing it on purpose. So that's one. And then when I was in fourth grade, I was impulsive. I would call out, I would walk up to the teacher's desk And that was actually challenging. That's where my bullying path started because she didn't really understand ADHD and I didn't know I had ADHD at the time. So I would 
feel embarrassed in front of the classroom when she would uh, talk out loud in front of everyone to tell me to go sit down or like discipline me. So fourth grade, I would say, is when it really manifested. Do you think, I mean, well, firstly, when was ADHD first mentioned in your life? Well, in 2006, I got my master's degree in students with disabilities because I learned about ADHD in undergrad when I was going for education. And I'm like, you know what? I want to specialize in special education. So around that time, 2006, and then I was a special education teacher working with ADHD students. And then I was an assistant director of special education, working with ADHD students and parents still didn't realize that I had ADHD. Gosh. <laughs> so fast forward, I started my company in 2018 and six months into it, I realized I had it. I talked to my best friend who's a social worker and I'm like, oh my God, I think I have ADHD. She's like, I know. I'm like, what do you mean you know? She's like, I told you you have it. I'm like, no, you didn't. She goes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that so, so similar, similar stories about you know, it, it's not necessarily the person, but it's someone it's who is close to them, a family member, a friend that actually maybe has a little bit more awareness and they alert yeah. the person. Um, yeah. Super interesting. So what did they say to you? So <laughs> she had said that several years prior, we were at my house and we were doing some sort of like thing where you had to remember stuff. And I kept forgetting. And honestly, now I'm forgetting specifically what it was, but she's like, I think you have ADHD. Um, and she said that I was defensive about it, which is so interesting as someone at that time who is educating people in ADHD. Why would I be defensive? But many of us are when we hear about that diagnosis. Anyway, um, yeah, so she had thought that I had it. I had no clue. In my younger days, in my elementary days, I was diagnosed with an auditory processing disorder, which sometimes is a precursor for ADHD. It could also be the chicken or the egg because mm. with ADHD, you have processing issues. Mm. So I That's... received speech for the auditory processing. Is there a name for the auditory processing condition that you were diagnosed with or was it just a broad thing that the doctors picked up on yeah it was just called an auditory processing disorder and i guess technically i still might have it today i haven't been tested but you get tested by an audiologist for that and initially with such little information they had thought that because i had so many ear infections growing up that that's why i had the auditory processing disorder because I wasn't hearing correctly. And then it took me a longer time to process. Fast forward, now I'm 39. I know it wasn't just that. Do you think that when somebody gets diagnosed a little later, I mean, you know, the, the, the age of diagnoses that I see range from super young to men and women in their 70s, 80s sometimes. Like, so do you think when you get that diagnosis, there's a sense of grief when you look back at experiences that ADHD probably played a factor in. When you look back into your earlier years and you might actually say, 
if I had known about ADHD back then, then that would have given me so much more context and color to explain that behavior. When you got your diagnosis, did you feel that grief at all? Actually, I didn't, but I'm generally a little bit slower in feeling feelings Mm. and everyone grieves differently. So for me, it was more validation, like, okay, yeah, whatever. And I was already in my self-development journey at the point that I knew that I had ADHD and I was already coaching people with ADHD. So I didn't feel the grief up until recently when things got a little bit heavier, a little bit more, um, more responsibilities on my plate. I got married. I have two stepsons. I have a daughter. So my schedule and my structure got disrupted. So when that happens and you lose your structure, then you start experiencing even more executive dysfunction because you're constantly like on alert. So it started bringing up some negativity bias from my past. And I started reflecting as of late about my past. Uh, I'm also doing some EMDR, which I have to go back to my past to bring that back up. So I think it's a combination of all that. So yes, I am starting to feel a little bit of grief, but this is also like four years later, five Mm. years later. You mentioned that you had a, a, an awareness that you, you probably had ADHD before you actually got the official diagnosis. What, mm-hmm. what led you to seek assessment? So when I was coaching adults with ADHD in 2019, this was six months into my coaching practice. I, in the past, I had worked with students, right? So, you know, ADHD can manifest differently. There's so many different ways and symptoms And as you become older, sometimes the hyperactivity decreases and the inattention can increase. So anyway, long story short, I saw in the way that my adult clients were showing up, it was similar to what I was experiencing. One of the telltale signs was online. I was coaching and I would try to coach them and then I would go try to do my notes And then I would coach another person and then I would try to do my notes. It was so difficult shifting my attention from coaching to note-taking and then back to coaching a new client and then note-taking, going back and forth. I never really felt that before, even in my adult life. I'm not sure why, if it was just being online that I felt it more and I was more with myself rather than being in the hustle and bustle of the New York school district where I'm always on my feet and not paying attention to my awareness of self. So that's when I started to realize it. And then I contacted Dr. Stephanie Sarkis, who actually also lives in Florida. And I said, Hey, these are my symptoms. I believe that I have it. So she sent me a bunch of surveys. I gave it to my dad, my mom, my best friend who thinks that I have ADHD, my sister, people who knew me before I was the age of 12. Mm. And it came out that I was moderate ADHD combined type. So a little bit of inattentive and a little bit of hyperactive. That's so fascinating. And you were, how how old were you when you got the 35, 36? Yeah, I was 35. I had just turned 35. 
So fascinating. So essentially, you were you you were you were coaching people with ADHD, and, and then you rec- and then during the process, you recognized what your clients were saying to you in yourself, and that made you yes. seek assessment. I mean, that's one of the most interesting routes to getting a diagnosis that I think I've ever heard. It's fascinating. I know. I know. I don't believe in, I I believe we control our destinies, but I do believe that someone's writing a script because what got me to work with students with ADHD for 13 years and then be an ADHD coach, my dad always made fun of me because he said, Brooke, you're you're attracted to men with ADHD. This was before I met my <laughs> husband and I knew I had ADHD. He's like, every single guy that you are attracted to has ADHD. So I like, I found my people, but I didn't know that I too was struggling with it. And yes, my husband has ADHD. He didn't know until I came to his life. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a fascinating thing you've alluded to about, I mean, your... Okay, you're attracted to men with ADHD, you know. So what, what, again, is it what came first, the chicken or the egg? Do you think you're subconsciously attracted to the, the, the traits that ADHD exhibit? Impulsivity, creativity, all of the above. I mean, do you, if you look back in your, you know, we don't need to go into details, but the history of your, the, your, your dating life. So there's a track record there of potential men with ADHD. Yeah, I, I tried to think about this. And one of the things that I think was because when I was younger, I had low self-esteem. And with ADHD, very often we can just like fall in love so quickly. And I feel like the the men in my relationships and my serious relationships were like that. So they just like gravitated. We both gravitated towards each other. It was a fast relationship. It sometimes lasted long, sometimes not. And in, it was easier in that sense where all the guessing was out the door, where mm. in a neurotypical relationship, very often you go through the dating phase, you date other people, maybe you take it a little bit at a time, you pace yourself. ADHD, very often we jump right into things because we have this feeling, we have this dopamine rush and then shortly after we get bored or underwhelmed in the relationship. Mm, pacing yourself? That sounds bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm too impatient to figure out if you like me or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell me. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting, you know, whether it's relationships or friendships or even hobbies. You know, you just go, it's all or nothing for me. All in. All in. And sometimes it lasts, sometimes it doesn't. But during the early phases, like that brain activation, that obsession, you just become obsessed with that person. And you, so you can sort of see that pattern in your relationship in history? In my relationships? Yes. Yeah. Now, fast forward, I'm married to my husband and we've been married. Uh, I met him in 2000. 19, the end of 2019. And we had that fast attraction towards each other. But at that point, I had done the work in myself. So I knew what I was looking for in a partner. I knew what I like, I knew about myself, where previously, I was just attracted to this sense of a person. When I met him, I knew what my core values were, I knew what I wanted 
in the core values of another human that I was going to have a relationship with. So that's what helped seal the deal there. Hmm. Oh, we've really nicely sort of gone on to a topic that I wasn't planning on going on to, which is, you know, ADHD in relationships. And you've met your husband in 2019. And how do you think ADHD shows up in your relationship, the positives perhaps and the negatives? So these are one of those things, huh? That you, you just go there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I could, I could, uh, yeah. Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, so no, I mean, it, there's there's pros and cons. So my husband, he has ADHD, hyperactive, and I would say that he has like the extreme ADHD type. Now, he has a background of being a pilot, which is probably the least ADHD-friendly job ever. So he had to train his brain to be very disciplined and um, follow processes. Right. So, okay. which is not the typical ADHD. So in our relationship, the, the pros of it is that we both are spontaneous. We both like to have a good time. And there's never a dull moment. So mm. that's fun. And the pros of it also is that we both understand each other. So as he learns more about his ADHD, um, and I, you know, I still am learning about him as a person, we're growing together and we accept each other, just like everyone should in their relationships. We don't make excuses for our ADHD, but we understand there's an explanation. So I don't think we put as much pressure on ourselves and our relationship when we know something is directly related to a weakness of ours. We also, you know, make sure that we try to build in as much structure to our relationship as possible. Like when things are going off course, we come back and say, okay, we need to have a meeting and talk about like what you're doing, what I'm doing, like what we need to do to excite our relationship. Now, the, the downside of both of us having ADHD is that we forget to do the things that we <laughs> have already put into place, right? Yeah, yeah. So those meetings or like going on date nights, like all those things that we know are so important until it, like we have that reminder in front of us, we forget. So we have to do our best to get on top of the things that help our relationship. It sounds like that awareness and that ability to communicate about ADHD and to be open with each other and have that relatability mm -hmm. when observing each other's behavior is, is really crucial. And, you know, I, I see some really terrifying statistics that marriages where ADHD is involved with either one partner or the other. The terrifying thing is, you know, divorce rates are four times higher. But when mm -hmm. there's an awareness that ADHD is involved and there's communication, understanding, then actually it drops down to pretty much the same as the average so I think the things you're talking about, you know, having that communication, really having that time to to check in and say what's good, what's bad, just little things like that. You're massively connecting because otherwise if you don't, lots of things like RSD or you can see how, if not understood and spoken about, the traits of ADHD could make a relationship in the long run fall apart. 
Like, Absolutely. you know, why is this person not talking to me? Why are they ignoring, zoning out when I'm, when I'm having a conversation with them? Why are they forgetting my birthday? Why are they forgetting our anniversary? You know, all the stuff that could make someone feel like you don't value them. So no, it's super interesting to, to hear it from your point of view. And do you think that, that um, having that communication is, is valuable? And do you have any tips for somebody who is in a similar situation to you that is in a relationship that things that someone could do to, to really communicate with their partner? Yeah, communication is everything, right? If you don't communicate, then you are just essentially like co-living in a space without mm. having a relationship. So I don't think you should communicate everything that's on your mind all the time or else it's just going to be like an open dialogue of communication 24 7 right i think that it's important that you do have your weekly check-ins with your partner and um you share the good like and what you need from them um what the plan is for the next week so you're on the same page any big things that you want to talk about any small things that you want to talk about so this way, it's not just like random impulsive communication. Oh, we got to, because I get there when my dopamine is low or I feel like my partner is not listening. I'll be like, oh, we have to do the window. Oh, we have to hire a cleaning lady. Oh, we have to do this. Oh, we have to order this. And he's like, whoa, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, you realize like, no, you got to just come back to center and put a meeting that you have to check in with each other even if all is good and just say like, things are going well now. Like I also wrote an article on Attitude Magazine in 2020 about a partner with ADHD and there's some uh, tips for the non-ADHD partner and the ADHD partner. Um, but date night's huge. Checking in with each other is huge. Hugging each other for at least 10 seconds, that increases that oxytocin, that love chemical super important. Um, and when things are really good and when you have more cookies in the jar, let's say this is metaphorically, mm. you have like things are good, more cookies. You don't really notice those little things as much, but when you're empty and there's no cookies in the cookie jar, then you notice when things are missing. So the point is to try to fill it up as much as possible. So the little things don't bother you. So really know all of the things that we mentioned already, but also love languages huge. Like my partner and I have different love languages. So the way that he expresses love is different the way that I receive love. So we have to really be intentional about how we treat each other. I've heard quite a fair bit about different love languages and you, you mentioned it slightly then. Could you explain what you mean by different love languages? And just to share my understanding to make sure that we're on the same page. For example, what I might think someone who loves me might do might be like an act of service or mm -hmm. might be a stuff they verbally like communicate with me or is that roughly are we on the same page there yes those are my husband's two love languages acts of service and ver uh, words of affirmation my love language is um what is my love language? I have to think about it for a second. <laughs> um, my love language is I, I think it was um like gift giving and it's like slipping for me, but we have different love languages. So yes, mm. we are on the same page there. And it's so important because I suppose if there isn't that communication physical about physical touch. Like, physical Sorry. touch, right? Got you. Yes. That's so interesting. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. 
sorry, it's physical touch, quality, and quality time. Those are my two love languages. Quality time. Okay. And what does quality time look like to you? It's like the antithesis of having ADHD. So (laughs) (laughs) even if it's five minutes, um, being like legitimately being with the person where they're off their phone, I'm off my phone and you're like just next to each other and enjoying each other's time. For instance, I had COVID right before I gave birth and it was like the best week of my life because my husband was making me all of these dinners and we were spending time together uninterrupted outside. We were court, like we were separated, but that quality time, even when I gave birth, we were in the hospital together and we were away from distractions of the world. No one could come into the hospital. Um, you know, my family couldn't visit, his family couldn't visit. We weren't working. So all of those quality time, like the, where you would think, oh my God, that must be so stressful for you to just have given a birth or to have COVID. No, I loved it because we were together. It's such a, thanks for sharing that. It's such a important conversation, which I think many people neurodivergent or neurotypical just don't have either early Mm -hmm. on or in the middle of their relationship. You know, what do you value? What can I do that makes my love for you apparent? You know, and it's such, it almost sounds quite like a childish conversation, but it's so important because otherwise you can have this crossover, this miscommunication, you know, you, you think your partner doesn't appreciate you, doesn't love you, when in fact they're just displaying it in a different way. Super interesting. Yeah, so you got to know. And then I think that's in anything. If you have kids, you have to understand their love language. If you have a team in a business, you have to understand their love languages. So, I mean, it's just the reality of the world and relationships period when did you have when did you have kids i so i have two stepsons one's 10 and 12 and i met them when they were 6 and 8 and then i also have a 19 month old daughter brielle and uh so i had her 19 months ago And uh, we had just, in true ADHD fashion, we had just moved to a new house while I was pregnant and kind of just doing everything at once. I obviously can't speak. I am a a male, but I've I've read a lot and a lot of my listeners are super interested in how pregnancy and hormonal fluctuations throughout that amazing period of your life affects Mm -hmm. ADHD traits. Did you notice Mm -hmm. there was like a noticeable difference in how your ADHD showed up throughout? I mean, it start as early as you like, like from early pregnancy. How did, how did that look to you for you? Yeah. So my first trimester, I was actually super focused, even though I felt sick, I was throwing up. I, um, I, you know, my estrogen levels and progesterone and all of that changes. So that first trimester, believe it or not, you have more ability to focus. Generally speaking, the second and third trimester, it starts decreasing. I also did not take my stimulants because I have moderate type ADHD. I was able to like use the behavioral traits that I teach people in coaching to manage my ADHD. I also lessened how much I was taking on, which helped calm some of those um, executive dysfunction symptoms. So 
yeah, the hormones changed. And then once I had her, they changed also. So because I was breastfeeding, it felt like I was still pregnant. And I was at that point was still not taking my stimulants. So it impacts your ability to focus. It's, 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 I mean, it's a whole new world for me and it's something I'm learning about. And I imagine when you, did you find that when you obviously in the later stages and you were, you were very limited to how much you could actually move around, um, did that come with a, a, a degree of frustration, perhaps that you wanted to do more than you, than you could? I really got rid of so many things and delegated a lot. And there was, but I was playing tennis up until eight months. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I felt like superhuman strength on the tennis court. I was jumping and leaping, you know, like people were like, are you, are you serious? Like, why are you still playing? You're scaring me. I don't want to hit you. So not really the last month. Yes. The last month I was just ready already. And, um, I was swollen everywhere and, um, it was hard to sleep. So, and she was a big girl when she came out. So, <laughs> so you had had the baby. Congratulations, by the way, for um, thank you for nineteen months ago. I think you said, um, and then you're responsible for this this other life, which suddenly yeah. you're not just responsible for your own time and your own well being. You're responsible exactly. for this other human being. So. I imagine, like, I mean, look, I've, I've got a dog. That's the only thing I can compare it to, having some responsibility for another life, right? But having a kid, it must be hey, having a having a puppy, you know, it's like having a baby. Um, you know, you are constantly attending to it. The One of the, the things that I was worried about, too, is once this baby's out of me, now what, right? Um, so I didn't have a terrible pregnancy. Once she came out, I was luckily um, able to hire a night nurse and a day nurse for the first two weeks. That took off so much stress for my husband and I because I was able to kind of ease into momhood and, you know, I was actually able to sleep, which helped my ADHD symptoms. The only time I would wake up is when I had to pump or breastfeed. But besides that, I was able to get like a solid four or five hours of sleep uh, at different chunks. Then after that, I, you know, got into the the momhood. But again, you have, I was able to have a community of people that were around me that, you know, did it or were a support group. I think that was number one, just like when you learn you have ADHD, like getting that support group to mm. help you understand your symptoms. So my hospital had free support groups weekly. I hopped on those calls on Zoom. I spoke to other new moms and, you know, was able to vent or hear what they were going through and ask for advice. So that was extremely helpful. We also had a WhatsApp group where we we're sharing information. I read what to expect, um, not when you're expecting, but what to expect after the first year. That was helpful. It was broken down into monthly chunks. And I share that with all my ADHD and new moms. You don't have to worry about what happens in a year from now. You can look month one. This is what you should expect. Month two, this is what you should expect. Month three, this is what you should expect. And that helped my ADHD brain so much not having to worry about the future. 
Um, and then leaning into my family and friends for help. And I also got a nanny, which was super helpful as well. So I can get back to work and reclaim my adulthood as well. I spoke to um, a, a, a fascinating woman on this podcast called ADHD Cherry. She's a, a mum of, of three children. And sh I asked mm -hmm. her the question, and it sounds like a, a horrible question, but like, can you get uh, burnt out as a parent in the same way that you might get burnt out from a job? And she, and I was quite shocked at her response. She was like, yes, of course. And actually now I'm fully aware that you can. So, I mean, you've, you've already answered. That's something you relate to, this kind of like burnout as a being a parent? Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, like for all you single people out there, when you don't have kids, you drive your schedule. I mean, yeah, there's ADHD. But at the same time, if you want to wake up at a certain time and you don't have a job that you need to wake up for at a certain time, you can. And then when you wake up, it's your choice to do what you want to do. I'm on my baby's schedule. So as soon as she wakes up, I'm up. And that just shocks my nervous system, right? I don't have that like slow, gradual, slow rolling my morning. If I need to do that, I would have to set my alarm for like two hours earlier than she would wake up. Um, and then it's, it's constant. So in order to be able to take care of other people. We've heard it before. You have to put your oxygen mask on first and there's nothing wrong in asking for help. So if you have a supportive partner, it's helpful. If you have hired help, that's helpful. If you have family that can help, it's helpful. If you have systems in place, it's helpful. You have to take care of yourself first because if you don't, then you're not going to be able to take care of your kids. And then they're going to see your stressed out symptoms and they're going to play into it and that can create anxiety for them. So it's a lot to think about. Yeah, I mean it's super helpful, you know, and um, I'll, I'll be there one day. So you know, I'll, I'll be drawing, I'll be drawing on all of this advice. <laughs> I got you. Do you think um, and rejection sensitive rejection sensitive dysphoria clearly a a big topic? And you know, you could probably mm -hmm. we could probably do a whole episode on it. But do you think as a parent, there's a danger of sen getting RSD in response to something your child does? For example, mm -hmm. they might be drawn towards... Favoring one parent. Yeah, favoring one parent or another, or even maybe just talking about another parent at school. I know that might be not the age that your child children are at yet. I mean, yeah, again, you've kind of answered that. Like, rejection-sensitive dysphoria as a parent between the child and parent relationship, is that a thing? Oh my gosh, yes. And also, I'm a stepmom of two boys. Now, boys generally love their mom, right? I'm the stepmom. So trying to navigate that and then get married very quickly and then have a baby very quickly all in like a four-year span, that was hard in the beginning. Um, they didn't want to accept me the way that my husband accepted me right away because I was a stranger essentially to them. Uh, so it took a lot of time for the older one to warm up. And the younger one um, was immature at the time, so it didn't really, you know, he he was able to warm up quicker. Um, but now he's going through some stuff too where he wants his mom all the time and it hurts. It does, but then I have to realize to myself, it's okay. It's not about me. It's about them and doing what's best for them and helping both boys mature and grow and, you know, 
love all of their parents. So I, all I could do is the best that I can. But in the beginning, it felt like it was a lot of giving with like minimal rewards as, as horrible as that sounds, not being the biological parent in the beginning can feel lonely, but now it's wonderful. And then as far as RSD with my child, with my 19 month old, yeah, when she wants her dad and screams for her dad and doesn't say mama, but says papa after like giving birth, carrying her, doing all these things, it hurts a little bit, but I know that she loves me. So yes. And another thing is that, and we can go into a whole podcast episode about this, is the the homework situation with the voice you know how to navigate that both of them have ADHD so does their dad help them or do i try to help them and sometimes like be associated as you know the meme stepmom or you know do we get an executive <laughs> function coach because there's a lot of emotion that goes into it. So for our younger one, I actually hired one of my coaches and she was coaching him for a period of time. Both boys are on stimulant medication, which also helps them throughout school and in their homework and just, you know, their self-esteem as well. But um, yeah, there's a lot of things to navigate. Well, if they've got the best help that they can get, it must be having a stepmom who is a ADHD slash executive function coach, right? I mean, you're, it's what you do. So do you think that there's that you can draw down from your experience and all the clients that you've coached over the years and then apply that to closer to home, your, your stepchildren, your, even your children Absolutely. or your husband? Absolutely. And I want to be very clear that, you know, it's different as a step parent or a parent biological that my role I, I have taken on is to love them unconditionally, right? Not to discipline. Um, so I have to kind of like be careful with those lines. Sometimes I get into the disciplining and I'm like, no, that's not my role, you know? Anywho, with that being said, my younger one has ADHD, has learning disabilities, had a speech and language disorder. Um, and the school didn't want to give him accommodations or services. So I had to whip out my special education director guns and say, you are not following the law. He mm. needs to be tested. Bah, 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 bah. So that has helped. And that has helped him He's in the process of getting what he needs. So yes, that comes into play. I'm also able to like sit down next to my 10 year old and help him in a way that works with his brain rather than telling him what to do with his homework. So I, I, I think it definitely helps to navigate the academic piece. Mm. Well, he sounds you know, incredibly lucky to have you in his corner and with doing stuff like this and the awareness on social media and just general content. You know, the plan is that the other mothers and fathers and parents and just people generally will have this awareness. So when a child is at a school that isn't putting in the accommodations, then they'll have the knowledge and the confidence to speak up like, you know, you do because you clearly have that's what you do, right? That's that's what that's your job. That's what I do. Yeah. You have to advocate for your kids because unfortunately no one else is going to. So mm. 
if you think there's something off, like feel free to give us a call. We're happy to just kind of give you some sort of roadmap or advice on who to contact if it's not us, but um, we got to stand together as parents. It's hard enough. Then you bring in an ADHD child and you probably have ADHD or your, your partner has ADHD. There's a lot. <laughs> we spoke briefly just off air um, about the book that you've written and, and the exciting process you're going through now, the final little tweaks and touches to get it ready for publication. When did that mm -hmm. journey start? So it's funny, it's kind of been an ongoing thing since I started coaching. So five years, um, it ties in my signature process, which is 3C activation for adults with ADHD. And then finally, I think in January, I said, all right, I got, I got to pull the trigger. Like I'm doing this. I don't care what it takes. I'm doing this. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I started that journey. Then I went through a lot of editing phases and proofreading phases and all this. And long story short, I put it up for pre-sale and in within 24 hours, it was the number one new release in ADD, ADHD, behavioral disorders, memory disorders, uh, special education. And it's also a bestseller in a lot of those categories as well. So That's amazing. I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it officially releases October 1st. I was showing you, here's the cover of it. <laughs> here's my printout cover of it. Yeah, I keep it on my desk for motivation. Yeah, now I was saying how much I love the, the representation of the sometimes ADHD mind, the scatteredness of it. Mm, yes, the arrow, right? Where the arrow just goes all over the place and then eventually you get all the way up in the path that works for you. Mm. Yeah. So I wrote this book and it's a book and workbook and it's about, it's 12 steps to get from chaos to confidence. And it goes through my 3C activation con uh, process, but I also talk about the ADHD disruption cycle that I've kind of coined from overwhelm to underwhelm and back. So what happens when you're overwhelmed? You get this strong sense of rejection, sensitive dysphoria, your executive function shut down, right? Then eventually you get to burnout. From burnout, you then eventually get to underwhelm because you're not doing anything with burnout, right? Then when you're underwhelmed, then you have that exciting new idea to get you some dopamine. Mm. You get that exciting new idea, then you hyper-focus on it. <laughs> Right. This is the scary. This is like, and then, oh. do, do, do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, so hard, hard relate, hard relate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm so, looking yeah, into a mirror. Exactly, exactly. So like ADHD is not just overwhelm. It's a lot of underwhelm too that gets us to overwhelm. So how to break that vicious cycle and move yourself up to your confidence stage and potential. Obviously, it won't be linear but these are proven processes that have been recognized by Chopra Global, ADA, Attitude Magazine, Chad, you name it. Um, and I had Dr. Sharon Saline write the forward, uh, Dr. Hallowell reviewed it, uh, Dr. Amen, and several others. So I'm very, very excited about it. And that's available for pre-order now? It's available for pre-order on Amazon in mm. a lot of different countries. So you could go to my website, coachingwithbrook forward slash activate book, 
or you can just search on Amazon for activate your ADHD potential. And you should be able to see it on Amazon in your country. You can pre-order the Kindle version of it or the ebook version of it. But by October 1st, you will be able to order the paperback version as well. Fascinating. Well, that's what exactly what I'm going to be doing immediately after Aww. this. And I will put the links to it in the show notes. So if anyone wants to grab Thank a copy, you. they can too. I was Thank listening you. to you because it's something I'm thinking about exploring that sort of world of publishing and my big question that's like burning in my mind is like burnout and when you take on a big task and in your case oh let's gosh. talk about the book but just generally do you f- can you feel when burnout is brewing like inside of you and if you can do you do anything to to help you navigate and manage burnout Yeah. So I I see burnout in many different facets, right? You could be emotionally burned out. You could be physically burned out. You could be burned out because you're so underwhelmed that you have all these thoughts, right? Mm. In the case of the book so far, yes, I've hit a lot of burnout. So there was writer's block. And in my opinion, that was burnout. That happened around like March, April, I got burned out and I just put the whole thing on hold for about a month or so. I did have a timeline of trying to release it by October 1st, but I said, you know what? I don't care. Readers deserve a good book. I deserve to be, you know, intentional and creative about this. I am literally going to put on hold. So to answer your question in that sense, I experienced, experienced emotional burnout and it was just stacking. So I I realized I was stressed. I was eating more. I was having difficulty sleeping. You know, I would meet with my business coach week after week and he would say, hey, how's the book coming? And I'd be like, you know, so (laughs) um, I was avoiding it like the black plague. Mm. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to put this on hold and I'm not even going to think about the timeline. And when I feel good and creative, then I'll come back to it because you can't flow in your ideas when you have burnout. You can't Mm. get creative. You can't get into hyper-focus If you're burned out, nothing comes from burnout. So that was one example of burnout. Mm. Now we're like down to the wire, right? And even though the manuscript is done, the cover is done, there's these little tweaks here and there. And a book is like art for those of you who've created before. It's never done, (laughs) ever. (laughs) So every time my designer sends me the revised interior I spend three hours a night looking at it and being like, can you change this? Can you change that? (laughs) I've done that the last few nights and I'm starting to get burned out. I really am. (laughs) Burnt out through chasing perfectionism? Chasing perfectionism. Yeah. Yeah. That that last 5% of the book, you know, needs to be done. Um, And I think that since it's real, since it's tangible, since October 1st is the deadline, I'm starting to get nervous. And my husband says to me, why don't you just delay the book? I said, no, it's not about the deadline. It's about me. (laughs) 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 And it's about my listeners and my readers. Like I promise them October 1st, the manuscript is done. The book is Mm. done. I am just being too hypercritical here. Do you think that having that deadline in place gives you that motivation to really push for it? And do you think there would be a danger if you did push that deadline back 
then you might lose some motivation and, and actually the quality might go down of the final product? No, I don't think if I pushed it off, the quality would go down. I think actually I would probably, this is usually what happens. Whenever I push it off a deadline because I feel like I'm not ready, then I start thinking about a new idea. Mm. And then I'm like, Ooh, let me add this to the book. <laughs> but like, no, the book is done. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. no more deadlines, right? Like stop adding. You have a great book here and then start creating your next book. Like don't, there's nothing more to add to this book right now. It's solid in my opinion. Yeah. It's your baby. It's done. It's, it's I mean, done. it sounds fantastic. I can't wait to read it. And thank you. you it's, that, just... it's that imposter syndrome too. It's like, uh, what's going to happen when people open this up? Like I already have 110 pre-orders. And that means there's 110, well, 220 eyeballs on this. Oh gosh. You know, like what if they're not going to like <laughs> yeah. it? What if I get a bad review on Amazon? Yeah. Gosh. I remember when I got my first review on about on this podcast that wasn't, you know, raving and it just cut me like a dagger. And, you know, my, my audio quality on my first episode was really bad. I forgot to plug, plug my mic in and someone left a two-star review rightly so but gosh it cut you know that 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 feedback which is so which can hit us so hard um mm -hmm. gosh yeah and mm -hmm. it can stop so many people doing stuff sometimes it's like a defense mechanism you you, you sort of just mm -hmm. defend yourself from criticism so you don't put yourself out there you know you, you mentioned exactly that, the fear of getting a negative review and then i just thought about the the review i had about this podcast and looking back do you think that you've stopped yourself doing stuff in the past that would expose oh, yourself definitely. to criticism. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I have social anxiety. And um, as I mentioned, I got bullied in fourth grade all the way through age 35 um, until I started getting coached. And I still have issues going to social events, even though I'm an introvert extrovert and it appears like I'm this outgoing person. I, I put on a guard. Like I, I sometimes don't let people see really into me because there's still that child Brooke that comes out sometimes and needs that hug and says, wait, wait, hold off. <laughs> don't let them see the true you. So yeah, that comes out every now and then. Do you think you mask less now than you perhaps have done in your past? Now you have this amazing awareness of ADHD. Yeah. You know, Dr. Gabor Mate, and we talked about him before we started recording, talks about um, true self-esteem and uh, contingent self-esteem. And he says, true self-esteem is when you don't need to worry about being productive and getting things accomplished. You just feel this self-esteem without attaching an award to it. Contingent self-esteem is when you have to produce and have to get that reward to feel the self-esteem. Now, I, I still, it's, I it's very hard to have true self-esteem. I don't think, even if you're not neurodivergent, if you're neurotypical, not many people have true self-esteem. I think being 39 years old, running a company where I'm helping thousands and millions of people with ADHD and getting that feedback 
that positive feedback that Dr. Hallowell talks about as um, this euphoria for ADHDers when they hear good things about themselves, that has helped me alleviate a little bit of that RSD. Now it could sound childlike that I need that positive reinforcement, but hey, I have a, a log of awesome right here that like I get that self-esteem sometimes from myself by looking at this list on days where I don't feel good. Mm. And I'm like, wait, I wrote that. I'm a pr I'm proud of that. So anyway. I think it's so useful to not be embarrassed about thinking that some of the stuff that we do, some of the stuff that we put in place is childlike. And, you know, you mentioned it there and I've mentioned it before. Some of the coping mechanisms and the things that I have would probably be considered quite childlike. And I might feel quite embarrassed about mentioning them to people. For example, I have a huge whiteboard with big colorful magnets on right next to my computer mm -hmm. here, right? Um, and that's probably in society's eyes, the type of thing that a child would use to stay organized. Mm -hmm. But for mm -hmm. me, if I use an electronic calendar, which society says I should do, then I mm -hmm. will crash and burn and I will forget appointments of, I won't turn up to meetings. So it, having that confidence to admit that some of the stuff that we put in place to help us, you know, who cares if it might seem childlike? And if you want to have a list of things that you remind yourself that you're awesome, then, you know, more power to you. Absolutely. And that's the big thing about creating that awareness, knowing that you're not alone and other people do what you do. You're not very different than this neurotypical world. Like you do what works for you. And I promise you other people are doing it or they're doing something different. They might just not be talking about it. So that's why I love that you do this podcast and we have all of this information out on social media to show that you're part of a community and you're not alone and it's okay to uniquely be you because no one else can be. And the more you try to fight it, the more anxious and depressed you're going to be. So lean into it, build that confidence slowly, but surely by doing small things and surrounding yourself with people that really, truly appreciate you. And then you get to a more confidence stage eventually by stacking it up over time. Absolutely. I can't, I can't echo enough what you just said about finding your tribe, essentially finding a community of people that you ultimately, I guess, you don't need to mask around. And whether that's work colleagues or relationships or friendships, people that understand you and there's not this friction, you know, you're, you don't feel like you're swimming one way and everyone else is swimming against the tide. The, the, the power involved when you feel like you are amongst like-minded people and you're one of many, I think, you know, the, the mental health knock-on effects are, are huge. Just, just isolating it down to a single remedy of the fact that you don't feel alone and you don't feel like you're different because, you know, exactly. perhaps we are different to society's expectations, but when you find when you realize that actually maybe you're suited to a, a tribe that is slightly different and differently wired to how society would define 
normality, then that relief, that pressure just gets released a little bit. That anxiety goes down, that acceptance and the mental health consequences, productivity and all everything else goes up. Yes. And like you said, that burnout goes down and then you start becoming more creative and you're able to execute on things. You are able to learn about how to be accountable mm. and you get to learn about your brain. And again, just because you have ADHD doesn't mean that Alex and Brooke look alike or like we act alike. First of all, ADHD is invisible, but second of all, our symptoms can be extremely different. So it's a lot of trial and error as hard as error sounds, having your community of people, but trying and failing is so important too. But being around people who are okay with that failing too. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating and so helpful. I could speak to you all day, Brooke. I'm conscious of the fact that we're, we're coming up to the hour. Um, if people want to find out more about you or hear some more about your, your, what you're doing, hear you speak, where can they find you? Sure. So everywhere is coaching with Brooke with an E. So you could go to my website, coachingwithbrooke.com, my Instagram, we're visible there, coaching with Brooke. Um, I will be speaking and doing a free ADHD ed camp. Alex would love to have you talk there. I, it's our fifth annual ADHD ed camp. Uh, where we have 30 experts speak in person and online. And last year we had 600 people register. My book, Activate Your ADHD Potential, it will be out in a few weeks. So feel free to check that out. Literally my whole five years of process and coaching with Brooke and 20 years of experience helping ADHDers are packed in that book. So you can get all my tools for like 10 bucks. So, um, yeah. Amazing. Once again, Brooke, it's been super valuable for me. I've no doubt that it, this will be super valuable for the listeners. All I can say is thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex, for having me. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.